Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, I know you're always, at any given point in time, you are working on something important, but I understand you have a pretty important case that you'd like to talk about today. A very important case. Before I do, I might just greet everybody for the upcoming Easter weekend. And anyway, I understand that the ski season at Bogus Basin has been and extended until May 8th. As you know, I'll be coming up for a conference that I'll be speaking for in Boise the weekend of April 21st and 22nd, and then a couple churches on the 23rd. And I'll be speaking on the question of standing against federal tyranny for right there in your home of Twin Falls. And thank you for arranging that. That'll be for the Magic Valley Liberty Alliance, and that will be Thursday evening, the 20th, planning to go back on Monday, the 24th, but I'm still considering whether I should change that flight to Tuesday and spend a day (laughs) of skiing. And at age 77 with a couple of injuries, I'm not sure that's the wisest idea, especially since the snow will probably be a little wet, but still, still thinking that over. It's been an amazing year for snow. In fact, Utah, which is uh, known for its famous snow, um, actually one of the ski resorts had to close this last week because of too much really? snow. Yes. That's pretty rare. <laughs> wow. You often say Utah has the best powder, powder snow in the world. And Western skiers especially like powder. And anyway, that's the skiers and Western skiers don't know how to handle ice. <laughs> no, Eastern skiers don't know how to handle ice either. I mean, nobody can really handle it, but probably if you had to ski it a lot, you probably learn how to work around it a little bit. But anyway, you mentioned that I'm working on a very important case. I'm not exactly working about it as much as I am proclaiming it and talking about it. I'm talking about a very, very important case, more important than any other case that I've ever talked about here. And I'm not really sure how you caption this case, a Sanhedrin versus Jesus Christ, or Israel versus Jesus Christ, or Rome versus Jesus Christ, or human race versus Jesus Christ. But we're talking about the trial and crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And of course, you know, he was brought to trial on very, very serious charges, charges that are more serious than murder. He was brought to trial on charge of treason against Rome, which was considered to be a very serious offense, and also on the charge of blasphemy against God. And the charge of treason against Rome is utter nonsense, of course. The, the kingdom he was talking about, as he said, is not of this world. And he was saying, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. He wasn't talking about rebellion against Rome at all. In fact, when his ally John the Baptist was asked by Roman soldiers, well, what should we do? Should we be repentant toward God? What should we do? And he answered, oppress no one, accuse no one falsely, and be content with your wages. 
Now, be content with your wages implied that they were supposed to continue in the Roman military service. So Jesus and his followers are not talking about rebellion against Rome. Now, the charge of blasphemy is a more serious charge. It's more serious to blaspheme against God than it is to rebel against Rome. But as to a charge against blasphemy, if Jesus was not who he said he was, those charges would be accurate. When he says, thy sins be forgiven thee, and so on, only God has the power to forgive sins. To speak in the name of God forgiving sins is blasphemy, unless you really are the Son of God. In fact, you look to the various things that Jesus says, the various things that he does, and as C.S. Lewis tells us, that leaves us with the liar, lord, or lunatic trilemma. Somebody who claims to be the Son of God says things like, I and my Father are one, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He hath seen me, hath seen the Father. Anybody who makes claims like that, either that person is a liar, he's another fraud, or else he's crazy, he's another lunatic, or the only other alternative is he really is who he claims to be, the Son of God. As Lewis puts it, liar, lunatic, or Lord. Lewis says, you can't simply come to him as a great teacher or a great example. He did not leave us that option. He did not intend to. But so Jesus is tried on these charges, and of course the trial goes back and forth between Herod and Pilate. Herod, the Hasmonean authority, versus Pilate, the Roman governor, and they can't agree, but Jesus, of course, is sentenced to death. And when we look to Jesus' crucifixion, I'm going to suggest that we look at a passage of Scripture here, and I'm going to go to Psalms, Psalm 22. That's a surprise to some people. Crucifixion's in the New Testament. Why are you talking about the Psalms? Well, as it has been said, the Psalms are full of Christ. And in fact, no passage in the New Testament, so many passages in the New Testament will give us more eyewitness detail about the crucifixion, but none give us a better inner picture as to what Jesus is feeling and what he's thinking at the time of the crucifixion, then Psalm 22. Just to read a portion of this psalm. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. Those first words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about why Jesus would say that. Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabited the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried to thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am, this is Jesus again speaking through the Psalms, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All they that see me deride me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. 
let him deliver him, see that he delight in him. But thou art he that brought me forth into life. Thou dost make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from my birth. Thou art my God from the time I was born. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have encompassed me. Strong bulls of Dacian have beset me round. They gape round me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted and in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth under the jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Her dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may number all my bones. They look upon me and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be thou not far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. There is the picture of the mind of Jesus, the soul of Jesus, as he is being crucified. But again, when we're talking about this trial of Jesus, a trial that was conducted in violation of many of the Jewish laws, they were required to deliberate a second time after a capital verdict and did not do so. They were required to have counsel for the accused and did not do so. They were required to have a unanimous verdict. They were required to have everyone there, at least two members of the Sanhedrin clearly were not there, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. So, so many rules were violated as they rushed to judgment here. But the crucifixion took place. And God allowed the crucifixion to take place because it was necessary, necessary for our sins. Now, there are those today that deny the miracle of Good Friday and the miracle of Easter. Jesus didn't die on the cross, they will say, and if he did, he wasn't resurrected from the dead. Well, let's take a look at some of the evidence here. And interesting book that was recently published by Lee Strobel, titled The Case for Easter. A journalist investigates evidence for the resurrection. Strobel has written a number of books like this. The Case for Heaven is best known as The Case for Christ. Strobel was an atheist journalist and antagonistic toward God and Christianity, but a number of things began happening that caused him to start questioning his atheism. And being a journalist, he wasn't going to make a decision without doing thorough examination of evidence. And in the book, The Case for Christ, which has also been made a movie, you can watch it on YouTube. I have my apologetics students watch it. But in The Case for Christ, there he talks about the interviews that he had, interviews with leading archaeologists, with medical doctors, physicians, and so on, about whether Christianity is believable. 
And that, plus some other things that happened in his life, caused him to decide to become a Christian. His wife became a Christian shortly before he did. And it's a fascinating, compelling account. But the case for Easter, I think, does a very good job of presenting some of the arguments. In the Alabama Gazette, I published an article just a well, just a few days ago it came out. It was titled The Resurrection. There must be some other explanation. And as I say in the article, yes, there are explanations if you have faith enough to believe them. These explanations that are given actually require more faith than belief in the crucifixion and death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, what are a few of these other explanations? Well, one of these is what is referred to as the swoon theory. This is the idea that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Rather, he fell into a swoon or coma, state of unconsciousness, and was buried in that state of unconsciousness. And then after three days, he regained consciousness, and people thought he had risen from the dead. Back in 1965, there was a writer, Hugh Schoenfield, who wrote a best-selling book titled The Passover Plot. I remember reading at that time and not thinking much of it then, but that was the idea that there was a plot by the disciples that they would take the body of Jesus while he was comatose, and they would put him in a tomb, but allow some air to get in and so on, and then they would stage a resurrection three days later. But their plot, Schoenfeld said, was foiled because unexpectedly one of the Roman soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and so he was dead, and so the plot foiled. And then you have a few others, like Donovan Joyce in 1972 wrote a book titled The Jesus Scroll, and then 1982, a book, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, has a twist that Pontius Pilate had been bribed to allow Jesus to be taken down from the cross before he was dead, and so on. And even the authors of that book say, we cannot prove the accuracy of our conclusion. But is it possible that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that he just fell into a coma? I'm going to just read a portion here from Lee Strobel in his book, The Case for Easter, when he describes an interview that this interview with a Dr. Alexander Methanel, who is a medical doctor and also a PhD. And he says, as you would expect from someone with a medical degree from the University of Miami in Florida, and a doctor of engineering, University of Bristol in England, Methrell speaks with scientific precision. He is board certified in diagnosis by the American Board of Radiology and has been a consultant to the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute of the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. A former research scientist who has taught at the University of California, Methrell is the editor of five scientific books and has written for publications ranging from aerospace medicine to scientific American. His ingenious analysis of muscular contraction has been published in 
physiolo physiologist and biophysics journal. He even looks the role of a distinguished medical authority. He's an imposing figure with silver hair and a courteous yet formal demeanor. With scientific reserve, speaking slowly and methodically, he gives no hint of inner turmoil as he calmly describes the chilling details of Jesus' demise. Whatever was going on underneath, whatever distress caused him as a Christian to talk about the cruel fate that befell Jesus, he was able to mask with a professionalism born out of decades of laboratory research. I began by asking him, could you paint a picture of what happened to Jesus? It began after the last supper, he said. Jesus went with his disciples to the Mount of Olives, specifically to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, if you remember, he prayed all night. Now, during the process, he was anticipating the coming events of the next day. Since he knew the amount of suffering he was going to have to endure, he was quite naturally experiencing a great deal of psychological distress. But I stopped him a minute. But the Gospels tell us that he began to sweat blood at this point. Now, come on. Isn't that just a product of some overactive imagination? Nether all shook his head. Not at all, he replied. This is a known medical condition called hematidrosis. It's not very common, but it is associated with a high degree of psychological stress. What happens is that severe anxiety causes the release of chemicals that break down the capillaries in the sweat glands. As a result, there is a small amount of bleeding into those glands, and the sweat comes out tinged with blood. We're not talking about a lot of blood. It's just a very, very small amount. What this did was set up the skin to be extremely fragile so that when Jesus was flogged by the Roman soldier the next day, his skin would be very, very sensitive. Roman floggings were known to be terribly brutal. They usually consisted of 39 lashes, but frequently were a lot more than that, depending on the mood of the soldier applying the blows. The soldier would use a whip of braided leather, leather thongs with metal balls woven into them, when the whip would strike the flesh, those balls would cause deep bruises or contusions, which would break open with further blows. And the whip had pieces of sharp bone as well, which would cut the flesh severely. The back would be so shredded that part of the spine was sometimes exposed by the deep, deep cuts. The whipping would have gone all the way from the shoulders down to the back and the back of the legs. It was just terrible. One physician who has studied the Roman beating said, as the floggings continued, the lacerations would tear from the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. A third century historian by the name of Eusebius, he's considered to be really the first major church historian, I should add that, described a flogging by saying, the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. We know that many people would die from that kind of beating even before they could be crucified. At least, the victim would experience tremendous pain and go into hypovolemic shock. Hypo means low, 
Vol means volume, and emic means blood. So hypovolemic shock means the person is suffering the effects of losing a large amount of blood. This does four things. First, the heart races to try to pump blood that isn't there. Second, the blood pressure drops, causing fainting or collapse. Third, the kidney, kidneys stop producing urine to maintain what volume is left. And fourth, the person becomes very thirsty as the body craves fluids to replace the lost blood volume. Jesus was in hypovolemic shock as he staggered up the road to the execution site at Calvary, carrying the horizontal beam of the cross. Finally, Jesus collapsed, and the Roman soldier ordered Simon to carry the cross for him. Later, we read that Jesus said, I thirst, at which point a sip of vinegar was offered to him. Because of the terrible effects of this beating, there is no question that Jesus was already in serious to critical condition even before the nails were driven through his hands and feet. Well, Strobel says, I knew that even more repugnant testimony was yet to come. That's because historians are unanimous that Jesus survived the beating that day and went on to the cross. And that's where the real issue lies. In these days, when condemned criminals are strapped down and injected with poisons, or secured to a wooden chair and subject to a surge of electricity, the circumstances are highly controlled. Death comes rather quickly and predictably. Medical examiners certain carefully certify the victim's passing from close proximity, witness scrutinize everything from beginning to end. But how certain was death by this crude, slow, and rather inexact form of execution called crucifixion? A lot of people aren't even sure how the cross kills its victims. And without a trained medical examiner to officially attest that Jesus had died, might he have escaped the experience brutalized and bleeding, but nevertheless alive? I asked Dr. Mether all that question. What happened when he arrived at the site of the crucifixion? Dr. Metherall replied, he would have been laid down, and his hands would have been nailed in the outstretched position to the horizontal beam. That crossbar was called the patibulum, and at this stage, it was separate from the vertical beam, which was permanently set on the ground. I was having difficulty visualizing this. I needed more details. Nailed with what? The Romans used spikes. They were five to seven inches long and tapered to a sharp point. They were driven through the wrists. Yes, that's right, through the wrists. There was a solid position that would lock the hand. If the nails had been driven through the palms, his weight would have caused the skin to tear and he would have fallen off the cross. So the nails went through the wrists, although this was considered part of the hand in the language of the day. We'll continue. Welcome back. This is Constitution Classroom. 
with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, this is this is fascinating, and, and it's also just a little bit horrifying to, to hear described in medical detail what Jesus went through in the process of that crucifixion. I mean, it's, it's one thing to, to read about it in the scriptures and to kind of fill in the gaps with our imagination, but to hear it described in medical terms, um, boy, it, it, it just brings a real gravity. Well, let's continue. Yeah, granted, this is gruesome, but... Dr. Metherall continued, do you know what kind of pain you feel when you bang your elbow and hit your funny bone? That's actually another nerve called the ulna nerve. It's extremely painful when you actually hit it. Well, picture taking a pair of pliers and squeezing and crushing that nerve. That effect would be similar to what Jesus experienced. The pain was absolutely unbearable. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe. They had to invent a new word for it, excruciating. Literally, excruciating means out of the cross. Think of that. They needed to create a new word because there was nothing in the language that could describe the intense anguish caused during the crucifixion. At this point, Jesus was hoisted and the crossbar was driven through the vertical stake. Then the nails were driven through his feet. Again, the nerves in his feet would be crushed and there would be a similar type of pain. His arms would immediately have been stretched when he... The full weight of him hung on that cross, probably about six inches in length, and yet both shoulders would have been dislocated. This fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy in Psalm 22, which foretold the crucifixion hundreds of years before it took place and said, my bones are out of joint. Once a person is hanging in that vertical position, crucifixion is essentially an agonizing slow death of asphyxiation. That is suffocating. The reason is that the stresses on the muscles and diaphragm put the chest into the inhaled position. Basically, in order to exhale, the individual must push up on his feet so the tension on the muscles would be eased for a moment. In doing so, the nail would tear through the foot, eventually locking up against the tarsal bone. After managing to exhale, the person would then be able to relax down and take another breath in. Again, he'd have to push up to exhale, scraping his bloodied back against the coarse wood of the cross. This would go on and on until complete exhaustion would take over, and the person wouldn't be able to push up and breathe anymore. As a person slows down his breathing, he goes into what is called respiratory acidosis. The carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved as carbonic acid, causing the acidity of the blood to increase. This eventually leads to a regular heartbeat. In fact, with his heart beating erratically, Jesus would have known that he was at the moment of death, which is when he is able to say, Lord, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then he died of cardiac arrest. Point of the matter is, no way could he have survived this. And then a Roman soldier came around and being fairly certain that Jesus was dead, confirmed it by thrusting a spear into his right side. Probably his right side, that's not certain. The spear apparently went through the right lung and into the heart. So when the spear was pulled out, some fluid, the pericardial effusion and the pleural effusion came out. This would have the appearance of a clear fluid like water followed by a large volume of blood as the eyewitness John described in his gospel. 
Wait a minute, I said. When you read what John said, he said blood and water, not water and blood. But Dr. Mithril smiled. I'm not a Greek scholar, but according to people who are, the order of words in ancient Greek was determined not by sequence, but by prominence. This means that since there was a lot more blood than water, it would have first made sense for Jesus to mention the blood first. Point being simply this, that the heart was pierced. And what would Jesus' condition have been, I asked, and Methuel's gaze locked with mine. There was absolutely no doubt that Jesus was dead. Then he goes on to say, well, what if he had survived somehow? Not possible, he insists, but suppose somehow he had survived. And then, let's say he's able to escape from the linen wrappings. And let's remind you that the shroud that Jesus is wrapped in is about 30 feet long. And his arms are on his side, and he's supposed to manage to pull himself out of that somehow in this emaciated state. He's been there in that tomb without food, without water, possibly without air for three days. And now he's able to throw those bonds away and able to move aside, then walk among the He's unable to walk with the nail driven through his feet. And the point of the matter is, it is as clear as day that Jesus died on the cross, and even if he had not, he certainly would not have been able to revive to pull off what would appear to be a resurrection. There is only one possible explanation, he says, and that is that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose from the dead. And then Lee Strobel asks him a question. Jesus intentionally walked into the arms of his betrayer. He didn't resist arrest. He didn't defend himself at his trial. It was clear that he was willingly subjecting himself to what you described as a humiliating and agonizing form of torture. And I'd like to know why. What could possibly have motivated a person to agree to endure this sort of punishment? Frankly, I don't think a typical person could have done it, he replied, but Jesus knew what was coming, and he was willing to go through it, because this was the only way he could redeem us, by serving as our substitute and paying the death penalty that we deserve because of our rebellion against God. That was his whole mission in coming to earth. So, in one word, what motivated him was love. Well, that, I think, lays to rest the idea that Jesus could have just simply have swooned on the cross. Clearly, he died. So, with all of those problems, we have to dismiss the possibility of swoon theory. So, what other explanations can we give for the death and resurrection of Christ? If we aren't willing to accept this as a miracle of God, what else? Well, the other is that the women and the disciples went to the wrong tomb, an empty tomb, and assumed it was Jesus' tomb, and therefore mistakenly assumed that Jesus had risen from the dead. Well, people do make mistakes. That's possible, I guess, but it'd be easy to correct the mistake. 
if that's what happened, all the enemies of Jesus would have to do is go to the right tomb, and that's easy to identify because the tomb was the one that Joseph of Arimathea had owned and had asked permission from Pilate for the body so he could bury it in that tomb. All they would have to do was go to the right tomb and then produce the body, and that would silence all the rumors of Jesus' resurrection. But no one did. So that explanation is easy to dismiss. Now we have another explanation. The disciples stole the body. In fact, we're told in Scripture that the Jews paid the Roman soldiers to say that the disciples came and stole the body while we slept. Hey, I would love to have those Roman soldiers on the witness stand and cross-examine them about this. Cross-examination might go something like this. Now, soldier, you realize, do you not, that sleeping on post is a capital offense under Roman law? Well, yeah, yes, uh, yes, it is. And yet you maintain that every single one of you slept the entire time the disciples stole the body. Well, yes, uh, yeah, I don't like to say it, but I'm afraid that that's what we did. I guess we just got tired. And you never woke the entire time? No, no, not at all. Okay, soldier, now let me ask you this. A gang of people coming on the scene and rolling away a huge stone, removing a body, and carrying that body away, that would have made a lot of noise, wouldn't it? Well, I suppose so. And yet, you're telling us here under oath that not one of you stirred in, a le in the least during this entire episode? No, we didn't. We were asleep the entire time, I guess. I guess we must have been really tired. Well, if you slept the entire time, then you've disqualified yourself as witnesses. If you were asleep the entire time, you saw nothing, you heard nothing, and you know nothing at all about what happened. Your testimony is self-defeating, and it is totally worthless. In other words, that explanation simply makes no sense at all. Well, there are two other possible explanations. One of these explanations is that this is a hallucination. Jesus' appearances, they are hallucination. Is that possible, though? Well, Dr. Gary Collins, who is a professor of psychology, says that people have hallucinations, but he says, by their nature, only one person can see any given hallucination at any certain time. But we're told of hallucination, that to give you a further of his statement here, hallucinations are individual occurrences by their very nature. They certainly aren't something which can be seen by a group of people. 
Neither is it possible that one person could somehow induce an hallucination in somebody else. Since an hallucination exists only in this subjective personal sense, it is obvious that others cannot witness it. And yet, we see those who did witness the resurrection, who saw Jesus as he is resurrected from the dead, and look what we see about them. First of all, he appears to Mary Magdalene in John 20, verses 10 to 18. He appears to other women as well in Matthew 28 and verses 8 through 10. He appears to Cleopas, that's the Aramaic name for Peter, and also to another disciple on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. He appears to 11 disciples and to others in Luke 24, 33 through 49, and to 10 apostles and to other people in a time when Thomas is absent in John 20, and then to Thomas and the other apostles in John 20, 26 through 30. And there we not only have this supposed hallucination of Jesus, but Thomas is invited to put his hand in the riven side, and he is told to touch the hands that were pierced by the nails. And so we have a hallucination here that not only is seen, but is felt as well. We have Jesus talking, so the supposed hallucination is something that is heard as well as something that is seen. And then he is with the other apostles on the Mount of Olives before his ascension in Luke 24. The disciples again on Mark, Matthew 28 to the seven apostles in John 21. And then, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, I love the way Paul writes that. Paul, you know, is a lawyer. And Paul is writing there as calls himself a Pharisee, meaning a lawyer of the school of Gamaliel. That was one of the finest law teachers of the day. So that's why I say I'm a graduate of the Yale Law School. But anyway, so here he is in verse chapter 15 of the first Corinthians, where he summarizes the case for the resurrection, talks about each of these people that saw Jesus. And then he says, and afterward, he was seen by above, that is more than 500 brethren at once. 500 people at once saw Jesus. That's not an hallucination. And then he says, the greater part of these are still living today, although some have died. He adds that detail because he is telling us, or telling the people of his day, that is, you can go check this out. Talk to these witnesses. 500 of them. Most of them are still living. Ask them. And if any one of those witnesses, you can be sure that the enemies of Jesus, the Jewish enemies, the Greek enemies, the Roman enemies, that they would have been questioning these people. Are you really sure this is what you saw? And if any one of them had expressed doubts about it, you could be sure that the headlines in the Jerusalem Times would have read, witness says Paul lied, witness retracts testimony, and so on. And yet there is not the slightest evidence that any of those who saw the risen Christ later expressed any doubts about it. Okay, so we've seen some explanations that are given, the swoon theory, the went-to-the-wrong-tomb theory, 
the stolen body theory, the hallucination theory. There's only one other possible theory that some people raise, and that's that these people, all these people that claim to have seen the risen Christ, they were liars. That's about the only other claim that people can make. But way back in the early 1800s, there was a Harvard law professor by the name of Simon Greenleaf. He was considered to be the leading expert in the English-speaking world on the law of evidence, you know, the law of what testimony is admissible and what testimony is not admissible, admissible physical documents, things like this. And his work on evidence was in use in law schools throughout the English-speaking world for many decades. And McCormick and some of the current texts on evidence will still contain citations to Greenleaf's work of old there. And Greenleaf was a great skeptic in regard to Jesus Christ. Quick question, how much time do we have? Uh, we have about uh, five minutes. Okay, good. Anyway, he was skeptic, but he decided he was going to disprove the story of Jesus' resurrection. And he thought, nobody's in a better position to disprove it than I am. I'm the world's leading expert on evidence. I'm going to analyze the testimony of the four gospel writers and of the apostle Paul. I'm going to analyze them by rules of evidence that we would use in courts. Anyway, so he did a thorough study. And in 1846, he produced a book that was titled An Examination of the Testimony of the Evangelists by the Rules of Evidence Administered by Courts of Justice, with an account of the trial of Jesus, published in 1846. It's been republished many times since then. And you can find copies of this on eBay, fairly reasonable if you're willing to accept a used copy. But as he says, the idea that these disciples would have invented this story is suicidal. He says, first of all, from everything we see, these are well-meaning people. And they are qualified people. Matthew is a tax collector. He's used to listening to false stories and identifying the true from the false. Mark comes from a well-to-do home, and he's been the executive secretary for Peter, so he's used to keeping records together and so on. Luke is a scientist, a physician. John writes much later, after having had time to examine the evidence over a number of decades later. But he says, these are qualified people, but even supposing that they're liars, why would these men, as he says, who appear to be decent and honorable, invent a false story and hold fast to that false story, despite persecution, impoverishment, ridicule, torture, and death? All through their lives, and every one of these disciples, with the exception of John, every one of these disciples eventually died a martyr's death. All through their lives, they had opportunities to back away from their story, and yet they did not. Why would they do this? Why would they risk their lives, risk their fortunes, risk their reputations, risk everything like this for a story that they knew to be false? He said, now let's suppose that they're bad men. If they're bad men, let's suppose that they believe, they do believe that there is going to be a judgment of God. If they're bad men, why would they invent a story, a false story, that they know was going to incur God's judgment? 
when they stand before him. But let's suppose they don't believe there's going to be any judgment of God. Why would they invent a false story that's going to get them nothing but martyrdom and ridicule and poverty in this life? He says, from these absurdities, there is no escape. But in the perfect conviction and admission that they were good men, testifying to what they had carefully observed and considered and well knew to be true. J.P. Moreland, a philosopher, also describes it in very similar terms. He said, when Jesus was crucified, his followers were discouraged and depressed, so they dispersed. The Jesus movement was all but stopped in his tracks. Then after a short period of time, we see them abandoning their occupations, regathering, and committing themselves to spreading a very specific message that Jesus was the Messiah of God who died on a cross, returned to life, and was seen alive by them. And they were willing to spend the rest of their lives proclaiming this without any payoff from a human point of view. They faced a life of hardship. They often went without food, slept exposed to the elements, were ridiculed, beaten in prison. And finally, most of them were executed in torturous ways. For what? For good intentions? No, because they were convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had seen Jesus Christ alive from the dead. So as we look to Good Friday, as we think about Jesus on that cross, there's something else I think we need to remember. Besides all of the torture that Dothermetherol describes from a physical standpoint, consider the greater torture, and that is having our sins laid upon him. That's when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God the Father, God the Holy Spirit turned their backs upon him because they could not look upon sin. And yet, as Jesus commended himself into the hands of God and died a physical death and then rose from the dead, there's only one way that can happen, and this raises probably the final point that we need to consider. It's hard to believe this because ordinary people don't rise from the dead. But Jesus was not an ordinary person. He was and is the Son of God, the Word made flesh, as John says in chapter 114. He came into this world to die for our sins and to rise for our justification. And yes, it requires faith to believe that. But it is the only explanation that makes any sense at all. And it is also the only hope for the world. And so on Good Friday, let us commemorate his death. And at Easter Sunday, let's celebrate his resurrection. Fantastic. What a, what a great way to cap off the week. Now, the greatest feast in all history. And a case with a good ending. That's pretty powerful. That's, I mean, that's a very powerful argument. Colonel, we've got about... It's really not Jesus who's on trial, it's us. And we are acquitted because he paid the penalty for us. We've got just under a minute left. Colonel, for the sake of of your listeners in in Idaho, could you please reiterate when you will be uh, speaking here, just so people can get this on their calendar? I will be speaking for the Magic Valley Liberty Alliance there in Twin Falls on the 20th of April, that's a Thursday at 7 p.m. Possibly you know the location, Brian, but it's 7 p.m. And 
The title is going to be Standing Against Federal Tyranny. And then I'll be speaking for a conference, a biblical worldview conference in Boise on Friday afternoon and evening, and then Saturday morning and afternoon. Next week, I'll have the exact times and the exact location and everything for you. Then I'll be speaking for a church in Boise Sunday morning and a church in Boise Sunday afternoon. And if you're feeling adventurous, maybe getting in a little time on the ski slopes. We shall see. Awesome. <laughs> I think maybe I've got a, a couple shoulder injuries that I probably need to recover from, and maybe I'd be smarter to wait till next year, especially since the snow will probably be a little sticky. But oh.